Episode 2, Evan Pycon. Welcome to the Oxidative Potential Podcast, where we discuss all things sports science and performance. I'm your host, Matthew DeRoche, and with me is my fellow co-host, Phil Batterson. Enjoy. Today on the podcast, we have with us Evan Pycon. Evan is the chief physiologist and bioscientist at Knox, which is a uh, wearable biosensor company that is coming out with some pretty innovative stuff, which I'm interested to see. Um, you can find Evan at Evan underscore Pycon on Instagram, last name spelled P-E-I-K-O-N. You can also find a lot of Evan's information out there, um, like on Substack, for example, Emergent Performance Lab. I've read all of those articles, and they're super, super solid. A lot of really great concepts um, being you know, explained in a very, very uh, interesting and novel way. And also, there's a lot of stuff that Evan has really, really whittled down, whether it's with NEARS or other things, and provided us, the practitioner or the athlete, um, with some really good things to implement in our own training and practice. Um, you can also find Evan's courses on Moxie Monitor. He does a really good course on NEARS on there, and um, also... I believe it's the Training Think Tank website. They had a, uh, they have an education platform, and Evan's done quite a few courses on there, which I've went through as well, which are all absolutely fantastic. So tons of place places there to to find Evan. Um, this is a really great conversation, very wide ranging um, in topics like we discussed genetics, we discussed programming. We discuss development of the athlete. We discussed CrossFit, endurance sport, um, getting outside of your educational, um, basically home, talking about branching out into other fields. There is a lot of really good conversation in this, a lot of really interesting um, novel analogies. What, what I really like with Evan is he, even some of the things that you may have already come across uh, he explains them in such a way that honestly it takes on a new meaning almost and you start to see things a little bit differently um, so yeah and there's a there's so much stuff in this that you know Evan is really um, I consider one of the people that is a pioneer in exercise physiology because he does a really good job at uncovering some of the responses to training that a lot of people that have been around reading in the field and, and in the field for a long time that haven't really taken in consideration. So Evan, I consider one of those guys that um, really goes out there and, and carves his own path. So hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I did. 
and uh, we'll catch you later. I gave you a slight introduction in the intro, but um, what I'd like if, if you could do us a service and just give a brief overview of you know where you are now, how did you end up there, um, kind of the steps, maybe start off with maybe your athletic career, because most of us you know, get into this type of realm through our own journey of trying to make it somewhere, or improve performance, whatnot. Yeah, totally. So I have a unremarkable athletic careers, uh, middle distance runner um, yeah. that, that clearly didn't pan out for me. Uh, but I was interested in experimenting and dabbling. And that was a big part of how I ended up doing what I'm doing today. So coming out of college, I worked for a company called Training Think Tank. Um, where we worked with a lot of top CrossFit Games competitors. I also had a stint of trying to be competitive at CrossFit. Also didn't work that well for me. Uh, so you won't be hearing too much about my <laughs> athletic career. Um, but I spent a few years working with a lot of the top CrossFit Games competitors. We've had a handful of podium athletes come through our doors, worked with a lot of the top teams. And that's really where I cut my teeth, getting into physiologic testing and really coaching with athletes one-on-one. Um, as I kind of phased out of working with TTT, I started my own company, Emergent Performance Lab. And while I was working on that, I was an applied physiology consultant for a handful of U.S. professional sport teams. I also worked a lot with military special operations. Um, and I also worked as a scientific advisor for a few different sports tech companies. And now these days to kind of bring it full circle, I'm the chief physiologist and bioscientist at a tech company called Knox. And I work on uh, biosensor development and analytics. Which is a, it's a super interesting field because there's been a lot of takeoff in this space now over the last mm -hmm. few years. Because when you look at exercise physiology and the technology involved with that, we've, it's been stuck in this phase of lactate, uh, metabolic analysis, now the stuff with nears coming off and, and sample rates going through the roof and we're seeing so many new things come through the doors um in, in regards of technology which is really cool and I, I i remember hearing on a podcast i just listened to the other day with you on it you were talking about some of the technology you guys are working on in your company and it sounds whatever it is i have, I have no no real guesses but it sounds insane so um that that's pretty cool so Move, moving off of that um, introduction, it actually kind of lines up with, with the first question I have, which is the misapplication of data for training intervention. Now with, with CrossFit athletes, physiological testing isn't this well-established, um, you know, protocol-centered thing that people run to whenever they join a, a CrossFit gym to become a games athlete, right? It's not like running where you're like, oh man, I, I want to figure out my VO2 max or cycling, lactate, all these things are kind of ingrained in the culture for the most part, mm -hmm. much more with cycling. But with yeah. CrossFit, it's this kind of new emerging field. And with that, someone that spent so much time doing physiological testing, you would obviously have a lot more experience understanding the misapplication of certain data to CrossFit, mm -hmm. right? Because yeah. even with simple things, I'll, I'll kind of end on this, even with simple things like I see with heart rate, Mm -hmm. I see this all the time, the misapplication of heart rate and people seeing a lower heart rate corresponding with, you know, the same output or maybe mm -hmm. even a higher output. And they're like, oh, I'm getting fitter. Let's slam yeah. on more load, which realistically we, we know that 
you know, 95% of the time, that is a vagal response, right? Increased mm -hmm. vagal tone. And that's actually, if you look at like the Lambert's submaximal cycling test, this is the basis around understanding overtraining and overreaching, right? Is that heart rate coming down? Can they yep. not get their heart rate up? Um, so give us kind of a, a view of some of the things that you see in the field of CrossFit, or it may even be performance metrics, um, you know, people mistaking that, oh, this went up, then I must be getting stronger. Or if I get my strength up, I'm going to be better in endurance. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. So I could think of a few, I mean, man, there's so many different um, misapplications of data for training intervention. One of the ones that I just thought of while you were uh, talking about heart rate is that one people often don't know the um the range of error for the tools that they're using yeah. so there may actually be like a plus or minus two percent margin of error on the devices and people will take 0.5 percent changes in these measurements and mistake them to be meaningful in one way or another and it's like man that's just the variation of the device you're literally just making decisions based off of noise right now. Yeah. But assuming we have like really robust measurements, there's no margin of error on them. I think some of the biggest mistakes I see, one is an over-reliance on proxy measurements. And this could go in two different ways. It could be using performance as a proxy for physiologic changes. So I've seen a lot of times people say your performance on a 2K row is... Uh, a good predictor of your VO2 max or your 10-minute assault bike for max cals is a predictor of VO2 max. That's one way. Could also go the opposite way, which is using physiologic markers as a proxy for performance, i.e. your VO2 max went up, you're going to be a better athlete. And there's issues with both of these using the performance data as a proxy for physiologic changes. I mean, think of how many different things influence performance. The 2K row is not just a test of your VO2 max. There's tons of other physiologic markers, let alone the fact that your willingness to suffer on a given day, whether you slept well, um, if you're hydrated, these things are all going to impact performance. So an athlete could conceivably have a huge improvement in their VO2 max, not get better at a 2K, or they could get much better at a 2K and have made no changes to their VO2. We take the flip side approach vo2 max is a measure of performance there's a lot of things like economy that impact performance so your vo2 might go up and you might not get any better at your sport mm -hmm. so i think ultimately it doesn't mean that proxy measurements aren't useful it's just understanding how they relate to the thing that you actually want to influence so if you're trying to make a certain physiologic change or you're trying to make a certain performance change understand how the marker you're measuring really correlates with that and what their relationship is. And then you could hopefully not get steered in the wrong direction. Yeah. yeah. Just taking a broader view and keeping your finger on the pulse of how these things change. And with specific athletes, like you, you just mentioned there, VO2 max going up and not improving performance. I think it was Jim that um, educated me on the name of this, like the Simpsons paradox, I believe mm -hmm. you called it, um, which is a very common one that everyone's kind of heard of Paula Radcliffe, uh, increasing her VO2 max and, or sorry, her VO2 max was decreasing, mm -hmm. um, later on in her career and her performance was going up, yeah. but the performance was correlated with her running economy and also her lack of flexibility. So the decrease in mobility, her sit and reach test, right. Mm -hmm. And this is where people are just kind of like measuring 
things that they they misapply like oh i should be getting more mobile and it's like well you know how applicable yeah. is that to your sport is the required ranges um accessible if they mm -hmm. are okay well do we need any more um but yeah it, it 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 is a really good point because with crossfit i think a lot of people kind of miss i don't think there's a ton obviously like we talked about a physiological testing and crossfit which is unfortunate because i think a lot of people would gain from from more mm -hmm. of it but they take these performance metrics and they say oh i must be getting fitter my 2k row went up right mm -hmm. the amount of and because these people are only doing these activities you know for a brief period of time throughout their week mm -hmm. the chances are that their fitness is going up that quickly over just building coordination Mm -hmm. and and ray coding intramuscular coordination all these things are going up that's most likely what it is so it's it's good that you kind of um you know kind of brought the thing together of saying we got to take all, all things into consideration um and mentioning uh simmons paradox that's such a big one i mean using vo2 is a really easy marker like if your vo2 is mm -hmm. 80 milliliters per kilogram per minute mine's 50 like mm -hmm. you're going to kick my ass on it. Yeah, yeah ex exactly. Yeah. But if we're both sitting at 75, it's yeah. a complete toss up. So within a group of elite athletes, all of them pretty much have the same physiologic markers. So mm -hmm. within that group, they're not good predictors of performance, yeah. but across uh, heterogeneous groups, like beginners, intermediate, advanced, they're good markers. And that's exactly what we saw when I was working with top CrossFit games competitors. Um, During a one year period, I tested 10 of the, 30 males at the CrossFit games. And these are kind of spread across podium all the way up to guys at the back of the pack. Yeah. I can tell you that all of them pretty much had the same markers on every measurement that we tested. That's so you're like, why is this one guy getting second at the games and this other guy's 28? It's mm -hmm. not their VO2 max or lactate threshold or any of these efficiencies, a big part of it, but it's all of these other factors that are either harder to test in a conventional lab setting or um these other psychological factors tactics pacing things of this nature yeah that's interesting because I've, I've always thought about this let's say a crossfit athlete was to engage in specific vo2 max training right mm -hmm. like they were going to go from 60 they're going to spend two years on increasing it seeing if they get it up into the 70s mm -hmm obviously there's no real connection there there needs to be a sufficient vo2 max but mm. the amount of time it would take to get that vo2 max up i wonder the decline on all the other qualities would decrease so much that um you know that would be a mute point because to me i wonder like how if you could just put someone at an 80 you know mils per kg per minute vo2 max as a crossfitter do you think keeping the, the same qualities that their performance would not increase? But the reason that we can't do that is just because of the decrease in qualities that it would take to get there. Do you think if they had an 80 mil? Um, yeah, I think there's a point where some CrossFitters do have excessively high VO2 max values, really? but I okay. don't actually think that that's a good thing because yeah. there is a trade-off. At some point, further improvements in VO2 max are actually coming with a decrease in efficiency. Oh, yeah. 
So it's a seesaw effect. You can't have the highest VO2 max and the highest efficiency. There's actually a really awesome case study on Oscar Spenson, who has the highest VO2 max ever reported. And what you actually see is as he trains and his VO2 max goes up, his efficiency decreases. And as he detrains, his efficiency improves. Mm -hmm. And you see that to a less exaggerated degree with other endurance athletes. And it explains the Paul Radcliffe effect as well over five years. VO2 max is going down, but her running speed at VO2 max is getting faster and her efficiency and economy are significantly improving. So I think with the CrossFitter, most of them are already horribly inefficient. Yeah. So yeah, I think if yeah. you really put an even bigger engine on them past a point, they become even less efficient and they just end up outstripping their oxygen supply so quickly. Um, so it's that necessary versus sufficient. Like you probably need at least 60 milliliters yeah. per um kilogram per minute i'm pulling this is like an arbitrary number but is having 78 going to be better probably not there's going to be some point in that range where a given athlete's going to um optimize things for their own body and i don't think there's enough data to necessarily know where that tipping point is because you think of the total number of games athletes that have done this testing maybe it's 50 over a five-year period (laughs) yeah yeah not really a robust data set yeah yeah that 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 it's funny that you say that because when i do think about it and i think about the development of a crossfit athlete my concept is is that coordination and economy are the probably two most the two biggest factors right like Mm -hmm. we've seen that in several events where they had this new event and the person that is simply the most coordinated they may be the worst athlete on the field but the the individuals that is the most coordinated at that event you know takes it home right um and it's just a time factor but that that is a good point yeah the oscar svensson thing was is is a is a good um i'm sure you can find an art actually evan has an article on it with um when he talks about mitochondrial uncoupling and these Mm -hmm. things and efficiency um and it it does a really good point that this guy with this massive vo2 max right highest pretty much highest ever recorded um you know didn't really make much of a career in cycling at all. Yeah. And um, we've seen that with the, the Nike breaking too. If you actually look now, I never actually found Kipchoge's VO2 max. I've heard Phil Skiba allude to, he was somewhere in the middle of the pack within that data mm-hmm. set, which I think would have been in like the high seventies, somewhere in that low eighties. Yeah. I think that was the middle I, of the pack. I, yeah, I've been told it was around 78 milliliters per okay, kilogram yeah. per minute by people that have seen his data. Um, yeah. but I don't have a specific, um, yeah. like endpoint measurement. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we know there's tons of athletes with m- much higher capacities than that. And we obviously know the ability doesn't always translate. There's so many factors. So moving out of that, let's go into something that I'm really, uh, interested in. I don't actually hear a lot on is I've heard you, um, discuss before that when, you would send out these training blocks with athletes. You would do them in much more micro cycles over these, you know, larger macro cycles. You would essentially keep these two week blocks fairly similar from week to week. You change certain things, but this gave you a good ability to, to track, um, you know, progress and also track response, which I think is, is super interesting because I don't know if you've, you read the Niels Vanderpool uh, training manifesto, or have you heard of it? Is he 
is this speed the speed skater yeah, okay, yeah exactly. i've heard of this i haven't actually taken the time to read it yet though yeah so essentially he just lays out the same exact week over week i think the first block i want to say he did for 15 months which is like 35 hours of cycling and mm. it's the same wattages on each day mm. and then he moves into more threshold work and it's the same exact workout mm. and obviously with the you know adaptation principles people are like oh you got to constantly throw in these you know extreme variations and louis simmons and everything has to be different every day or you're not going to respond mm. and i mean that's a gross oversimplification of louis stuff uh mm. rest in peace louis but um you took a very uh kind of opposed view to that and said hey if we keep things the same we can actually if we keep things similar, we can actually monitor what's going on with the response of this. We can say, hey, did we actually keep improving? Are we still getting something out of this? And why are we changing it unnecessarily if we're, you know, still getting gains from this? And that's yeah. something I really don't see. People just want to change for the sake of changing because someone said something about it and not really. Yes. Yeah, so it's funny mentioning the speed skater. I have a friend that I ran with in high school and he went on to have a much better running career than I did. I think at his best, he was running a 353 mile. Yeah. And this is like 10 years after we graduated high school. Yeah. I asked him like, what are you doing for your training? Um, and he's like, I'm doing the same workouts that we were doing a decade ago. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, I've basically been following the exact same training plan that we did a decade back and I've just made minor changes when I've plateaued. So he's literally been running the same workouts for 10 years and just getting faster and faster at them making minor tweaks and iterations. Yeah. So if you were to look at his training plan, you're like, man, that's pretty much what you were doing when you were 16 years old, just adding a little bit more volume. And it's funny because that's, that's largely how I've trained athletes in the CrossFit space. People get into CrossFit because they love novelty but the irony is that if you have so much novelty, you actually have no idea what's getting you fitter yeah. or not. So you're always kind of shooting in the dark. So the way that I tend to train things is you mentioned the rotating split, because with CrossFit athletes, there's so many different things that you need to train that if you just try and slam it all into a one week period, you're just going to start running into mechanical limitations, athletes' bodies breaking down. So the way that I tend to program is with an A week split and a B week split. Mm -hmm. So you do an A week, then you do a B week. Those are two different splits. And then you come back around to an A week and then B weeks. So you're always going A, B, A, B, A, B. Mm -hmm. The way that I try to set the training plan up is within an A week and B week rotation, athletes are pretty much hitting everything that is relevant to the sport. And you're just adjusting the priority on some things more than others based on their limitations. Mm -hmm. And we're always making minor tweaks. So the way that I always think about this is that progressive overload is a sign of adaptation, but it's not the driver of adaptation. Mm -hmm. So the way that we're always taught about progressive overload and strength and conditioning is kind of backwards. You always hear this Milo the bull analogy yeah. um, that Milo carries the bull up the mountain, the bull gets bigger, so Milo gets stronger. Yeah. And it's kind of nonsensical. If you think of progressive overload in that term, it's you increase the weight beyond what you could lift so you could get stronger and then lift more you're like what <laughs> you're lifting what you can't lift so you can lift more no if you're able to progressively overload it means you have already adapted from the stimulus that's yeah. why you're able to lift more so progressive overload is the sign of adaptation not the driver 
So if someone's able to progressively overload, they're adding more weight to the bar, they're getting faster on their 400 meters splits, what have you, I don't change anything. Yeah. I'm literally just going to have them do the same exact workouts until they plateau. And then when someone stops progressing, I do what's called taking the next logical step. It's making the smallest possible change that you can to start getting them progressing again. Sometimes it's simple as adding one extra set of 200 meter repeats and then people start progressing again for weeks. Other times it's pulling a specific training protocol out of their rotation and then putting something else in. Maybe you have to rearrange the week a little bit to account for those changes. Mm. So essentially the long-term changes to their training are really just functions of always taking that next logical step and making micro adjustments over time. The way that I think about it is like building a house. Um, there's a construction site near where I live and I walk by there with my dog all the time. So if you go day to day and you look at the house, you're like, nothing has changed whatsoever. Even week to week, sometimes I walk by there and I'm like, oh, it looks pretty much the same as it did two weeks ago. Then all of a yeah. sudden, one day you walk by and you're like, what the hell? This looks nothing like it did six months ago. When did these changes occur? Because I walk by here every day and I think the place looks exactly the same. <laughs> and now suddenly it's a completed house when it was studs six months ago. That's how training within my program works as well. Day to day, week to week, month to month, you may only notice the slightest changes to the training split. But then if you project out over a six month or 12 month period, athletes are like, oh, I'm doing a completely different training split than I was a year ago. But if you look back over the whole arc of their training, there's really no defined point when you could pinpoint uh, where the training changed. Yeah, this is, uh, <clears throat> I think this kind of reminds me of a lot of John Kiley's work where if people aren't familiar with him, he's kind of been a big proponent of shifting the perspective around these traditional periodization models. Um, and he's done a good job at really putting himself out there and saying, you know, I don't know the best way, but I just know that this thing that we're all putting up on a pedestal isn't the necessary answer, um, mm -hmm. which, which he actually gets into a lot of stuff that I've always had thoughts about in terms of hormones and the endocrine response from an individual how much they believe in a training program. Mm -hmm. And I've always remembered this because I remember coming across some research on forced exercise with mice versus um, uh, voluntary exercise. And the responses to that are quite different. Yeah. And thinking to incorporate that into training, like I always used to say, like, I, I know if I, if I believe in this, that I will get better adaptation. So I would literally have these crazy things going on in my head about what was going on in my body when I was training. Yeah. Um, and I used to think of this as some type of like, you know, secret edge I was getting out of it. But I do think there's so much um, missed and why people adapt from specific training protocols. And people just throw so much noise into the mix that it's not even possible to understand what people are actually adapting to. Yeah. especially when you're taking something like CrossFit, it's so insanely noisy to begin with. And then people want to make it more noisy by saying more variation, more variation. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, you're going to, you're going to get good. You're doing work, but are you going to be as educated in the process five years down the road and understanding all these little things that made those big clicks, made those shifts and how your body responded and adapted from those. 
And um, I think that's just a big difference is understanding. And we'll get into this after is um, a question I did want to wouldn't talk on the difference between some of these um, kind of perspectives on developing an athlete where people kind of shoot for this quick result versus, you know, taking your time, you know, maybe cutting a few years off of your your initial career to take more time to develop so you're ready to get there. And I see this with other sports that's just not taken into account with with CrossFit. But yeah, anyways, John John Kiley, great work. And um, are, are, you're probably into some of his stuff as well, right? I'm guessing. Yeah, so I haven't kept up with uh, him in recent years. But yeah, I mean, years back, John Kiley was a huge influence. And it's funny that you mentioned him because every time I've talked to someone who we'll talk about periodization or training plans. And anytime I've like really vibed with someone and we're speaking the same language, it's always this question of like, have you read John Kiley? <laughs> they've always read John yeah. Kiley. So yeah, yeah. it's kind of funny that you've mentioned him. Yeah. Yeah. It's people have got to figure out why these things like so go, go back and read the, uh, you know, it's funny with Russia. I'm, I'm up to like 11 o'clock at night reading these Russian journals anyways. And these things, these people are nuts. These people yeah. are absolutely nuts. Some of the research that they're putting out and people are like, oh yeah, Russian research, they're not doing anything. I'm like, I can tell you for a fact, the stuff that they're researching right now is way further. Like they were doing stuff back in the seventies that we will not repeat. And in, in it's just, they're like the intricacies of arm wrestling, like mm -hmm. the nerve conduction signals, they're yeah. testing, they're doing stuff that we're just not even thinking about. Um, and they're, they're big into the developmental process. Like when I go through the journals, there's probably, I would say 50% of it is on athletic development as, as mm -hmm. children and how these, these, these children respond and develop in specific ways. Why do they think that, how do they break this model? How do they, they pull it apart? But, um, yeah, it's just about thinking about things different. The reason why I pulled up Russia is because these guys were taking massive amounts of drugs back in the day. Mm -hmm. And that informed a lot of these deload weeks, their training mm -hmm. cycles to be the way they were. So if people, and not only that, like the, the whole seasonal periods. <laughs> the lack of sunlight in the ex training hall. Exactly, yeah. yes, exactly. It's like. I love that. It's like an American coach went in, learned from them for years and came back and brought block periodization back to the West. It turns out once they invented UV lamps, they completely <laughs> figured that out. They're like, oh, it's yeah. just we didn't have vitamin D for six months of the year, but people still train with those methods here. Yeah, no, it's. It's good. I, I'm glad to hear a little fresh air on, on that. I don't, I don't hear it too often. So let's, let's move into some of the popular myths and misconceptions in sport performance and training for sport. Like mm -hmm. um, one of these things that I've, I've actually, I remember really worked my head around it. I think it was, it was back around, it was probably around 2015, 2016. I was listening to this podcast, Robbie Bork. I don't know if you heard him, all things strength and wellness. Yep, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You were on that. You were on that podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I talked to Robbie yeah. all the time. He's a really good friend. Yeah, yeah. So he had um, Fitzgerald on, James Fitzgerald, mm -hmm. uh, first winner of the CrossFit Games back in the day. And they kind of had a little brief, you know, back and forth on Robbie saying, well, if we, you know, build strength, our, you know, 
10, eight rep max, 20 rep max is going to go up. And James gave him some pushback. He's like, no, that's not true. Um, and I was like, what, this guy's out of his mind. Of course it is. Cause back then I was still kind of in the whole Louis Simmons, you know, you got to squat 800 yeah. pounds to run a 40 and mm. anyways. And then Robbie's like, what are you talking about? This is just against the laws of how, you know, response works. Yeah. Of course, you're going to get you're going to get more endurance from lifting more. And then it really never clicked in with me until I started thinking about some of the stuff when I came across your work about occlusions and thinking about not only that, but the coordination and adaptations of the neurological responses mm -hmm. of lifting higher weights does not always yeah. transfer over. So this is kind of like a setup for maybe some of the things that you've seen out there where people just kind of hold these pillars of you know, increasing your squat by 50 pounds is going to give you a better 20 rep squat max, right? Like it's just, yeah. you know, there's a lot of things out there that are kind of counterintuitive. And I don't know if you've come across. Yeah, I mean, so if we go years and years back, there's this big idea in the CrossFit world. Maybe this is still a big idea. I don't know. I don't really uh, keep too up to date with popular training ideas, but particularly when Outlaw was a big training camp. Hmm. everyone had this idea that if you could squat more deadlift more bench press more than everyone else in crossfit you're gonna wreck them in metcoms hmm. so you would see crossfit athletes squatting 550 pounds snatching 300 whatever back in the day when that was still considered crazy now that's just kind of the standard hmm. but then you would have an athlete with a 300 pound back squat just completely destroying a 550 pound squatter in a workout with wall balls and thrusters mm. and all these different movements and you're like what is going on it was confusing as hell to me at the time because i wasn't a particularly strong crossfit athlete and my whole idea was that if i could squat 500 pounds i'm going to start destroying everyone well turns out that it doesn't really matter what your one rep max is it matters what load you start restricting your own blood flow at so you could have someone that squats 500 pounds but they cut off their arterial blood flow at 50 percent of their one rep max you could have another athlete that squats 300 pounds and they don't cut off their arterial blood flow until 90 percent of their one rep max the athlete that squats 300 pounds and isn't restricting their own blood flow and creating a tourniquet out of their own muscle tissue is going to fare much better at a workout with high volume squatting because at the end of the day in CrossFit, in most cases, we're dealing with very light loads. It's 20 pound wall balls, maybe 115 pound thrusters in an open workout if you really wanted to push the load up. And even that's not super common. So is there really utility in squatting five, 600 pounds? Probably not. You're going from a weight being what? 20% of your one rep max to 15, yeah. not really moving the needle that much. Yeah. So one of the things that I realized over time is Strength is only important so long as it actually allows athletes to lift the weight. If there's 225 pound squat cleans in a Metcon, yeah, it's not going to be great. If you squat 240 pounds, you're not going to do very well. But when we're dealing with these lighter loads, it really matters what your occlusion threshold is, because that's going to determine whether or not you're able to get steady blood flow to the tissue and whether you're getting sufficient supply of oxygen. So just that kind of frame shift for me was something really significant working with these athletes because I stopped thinking of strength as a goal in and of itself. And strength was only important so long as it allowed athletes to lift the actual weights that were being used in competition. And once they get that check mark, I stopped caring about getting their strength higher. For most CrossFit athletes, unless you're at a games level, if you're squatting 400 pounds, 
probably don't need to train your squat anymore. You're much better off trying to improve your occlusion threshold. And that's actually going to have much more carryover to performing well in the sport. Yeah, it's <clears throat> sorry. It, it, it is quite funny because this is one of the biggest rabbit holes I went down at a certain period of time. I was training for this thing in the military back in the day where anyways, there's a certain requirements for the screening. And I just hone on, I honed in on one thing because I want to understand the process better, right? I was reading a lot of Pavel back in the day, Pavel Satsaline and these guys, Grease in the Groove. Um, and I was kind of thinking like, I think this is more so the answer. Like I wanted to do, see how, how many push-ups I could do in two minutes or just max push-ups in general. And I kind of discussed this with one of the guys I was living with who owned a gym at the time. And um he told me that, you know, if you want to increase your push-ups, you have to apply as much load to the tissue as possible, engage as much motor units as possible. And this is going to make you more efficient over time. So mm -hmm. I went down this rabbit hole of creating all these different variations of loading push-ups and mm -hmm. creating maximal tension, doing all this stuff. And my push-ups just kept going down and down and down. And I was training push-ups pretty much every other day. I kind of went away from the whole Satsaline thing, greasing the groove. And I just got into this focus program of mm. getting push-ups up because my other stuff was fine. It was going to pass. Um, and I just kept getting worse and worse. And it just, it, it didn't make sense to me until it was actually John Kiley's work that pulled me out of that. And he talked about this motor unit enslavement. And mm. when you start doing the same neurological pattern for an exercise over and over again, it's going to start capturing that more and more and more into the exercise, no matter when you do it. Mm -hmm. And what I realized was because <clears throat> I was actually being quite inefficient because I was creating so much maximal tension. People say, yeah, the more motor units you apply to the lighter load, the longer you'll be able to do it because you're using less, but it was actually the opposite. I was starting to occlude so much that within, mm -hmm. you know, 60 reps i had gone down to 60 reps now that i could yeah. do that um you know i was pumped out of my gills and mm -hmm. realistically what brought me out of that was understanding how can i achieve this with using the least amount of motor units possible and also mm -hmm. how can i cycle motor units while doing yeah. this and this is what i realized later on in life this is what cyclists do this is what runners do really effective economical runners and cyclists they're consistently cycling their motor units. They're slightly changing their position. They're creating some movement variability in there. And that helps them in, to, to create this endurance of what we see on the, on the, on the time boards and, and these things. But um, which is something that kind of wants to push me into this concept coming off of this is critical lift and critical power. I don't know if you've heard of this, but mm -hmm. this kind of fits in really well when we're talking about yeah, raising our one rep max doesn't increase endurance, but how can we find this thing that kind of fits the model of understanding how well we're improving our performance over time through testing? And I know you were a big proponent of using critical power, critical speed in these things and CrossFit back in the day. And now coming out with this critical lift, understanding the, you know, the curve response to loads and, and reps, do you think this could serve as a useful marker moving forward and profiling an athlete in between blocks as a test, right?
Yeah, so this is something we had played around with a few years ago, um, was getting critical lifts on a lot of the main lifts that you would use in CrossFit. And you would be able to plot this out and see where the asymptote is and essentially what is the load that this person could sustain nearly indefinitely. And what you find is even for very strong athletes, the loads are like minuscule. <laughs> you have a guy that's a 500-pound squatter and you're like, what is their critical load on a thruster? And you're like, it's 35 pounds. <laughs> really 35 freaking pounds like you're never gonna see that yeah. weight in a metcon yeah. so that's when you realize you could even model this out and you go okay so what happens if i get their squat up 50 pounds and you look how does this impact critical load on a thruster and you're like oh it brings it up to 38 pounds hmm. excellent <laughs> like that's <laughs> fantastic yeah. but then when you start playing with the different parameters in the model and you see what actually brings that y intercept upwards significantly it's not bringing their absolute strength up it's improving mm -hmm. their ability to uh, preserve their reps at lower loads and bringing the floor up over time where i mean some athletes it is bringing their absolute strength up but you could model these things out mm -hmm. the one thing that started to become impractical uh for this was that it just takes a lot of time to do this for each individual lift so yeah. we had played around with ways of just capturing training data so if people are doing metcons anyway and occasionally they're doing max unbroken sets just pulling those data points and refitting the curves with that <laughs> it just became a data limitation didn't yeah. have any software engineers at training think tank that could <laughs> make something that just pulls metrics from their training log but yeah i think it's a really valid concept and the really interesting thing is you think of a lot of the gymnastics movements in CrossFit. And when you think of the critical loads for those, oftentimes they're negative loads. Hmm. So you're like, okay, well, your critical load on a pull-up is minus 35 pounds. Like good luck being able to sustain chest bars indefinitely. And you find that the best CrossFitters, they actually approach body weight for their critical loads in a lot of these movements. Um, one of the most impressive feats that I saw was years back, we had Travis Mayer. Uh, I think he was doing like 200 wall balls for time at 30 pounds. And we were like predicting like, ah, oh, how many is he going to go unbroken? Did the whole thing unbroken? And it turns out when we had looked a while later, his critical load on squats was like through the roof. So that's where you see people being able to string together these ridiculous sets of movements. That's absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's funny because it's <clears throat> the model is, is quite simple to work with. It's just a little bit of a task to get these because critical power testing, it is quite inconvenient, even whatever sport you're doing it in. Right. But um, I think the curve gives a really good profile for an athlete without having to get on a metabolic analyzer or, you know, whatever nears or even, you know what I mean? Actually nears is much more. I think would be a little bit more useful in some cases um, for profiling quickly. But yeah, this um, for people with no technology out there trying to understand how their profile changes to, to mm -hmm. training and training interventions, I think I think it will actually become quite a useful model in the future. Hopefully we, we see more on that. The, the research is so small on it right now, but um, mm -hmm. it'd be interesting to see how that changes. So one thing I wanted to move into was... Um, you know, training and the physiology of elite CrossFitters. Um, like we kind of brushed on that briefly earlier, which was, you know, the VO2 max needs to be, you know, sufficient. Like I think you put the terms before it needs to be sufficient, but it's not, you know, required to have these massive capacities to, to compete at a certain level. But um, moving into maybe some of the, 
Nears profiles, which we didn't really touch on yet, mm-hmm. a lot of people might not be super familiar with, is I know you've spoken recently, and Evan has some great courses out there, guys, if you and, and great content out there. Um, if you want to understand more on this, but understanding the difference between these kind of two typical phenotypes that we see pretty much in every sport where you got this, you know, parabolic curve, this quote unquote aerobic athlete for those out there and quote unquote anaerobic athlete where these, you see these dramatic onset kinetics, right. Of desaturation. Mm -hmm. Um, If you want to kind of just go into that and, and maybe discuss a little bit of some of these typical profiles that you see and how people accomplish the same task, but in two different ways physiologically. Yeah. So at the top level in CrossFit, you man, it's hard. Like you do see two very different phenotypes, but they're also similar in that they share more characteristics than they differ in. Mm-hmm. So one of the really common things with high-level CrossFit athletes is you really almost never see them lacking in their ability to utilize oxygen in the peripheral tissues. They're usually pretty good utilizers. If they could get oxygenated blood into the periphery, they're going to be able to suck it up and utilize it for energy production. But where they're typically limited is either their uh, cardiovascular function. Mm-hmm. I actually think more in terms of their ability to dilate blood vessels than I do their cardiac output. I really do think cardiac output is more of a secondary um, quality where like you usually see cardiac output accounts for 90% of inter- inter-individual differences in VO2 max. I actually strongly disagree with that. I agree. Uh, cardiac output could only increase by about tenfold from rest to maximal effort exercise where blood vessel radius is raised to the fourth power could increase by multiple hundreds of orders of magnitude Mm. probably impacts peripheral blood flow to a much greater degree Mm. um the issue is that if you don't have good cardiac output your brain won't let you dilate so i think of that as one phenotype the person that either can't dilate in the periphery or they're capable of dilating but their maximal cardiac output isn't good enough to maintain their blood pressure and then their brain sympathetically vasoconstricts them i call those people uh delivery limited athletes Mm. then we also have another main phenotype with the high level individuals where they have good oxygen utilization they have good peripheral vasodilation and blood flow they have good cardiac output but by virtue of being so good at all those things they end up creating a respiratory limitation which is almost like uh the deterministic limiter if you're really good at everything because the respiratory system is really unique in that it really doesn't adapt very well to maximal effort exercise. So when you look at elite endurance athletes, their cardiac output is so much higher than the ordinary person. Their oxygen utilization is so much higher. And then you look at their pulmonary system function. Here I go. You have the same pulmonary metrics as this dude who's been sitting on a couch for 10 years. Interesting. And in fact, there's actually a lot of instances where uh, elite endurance athletes have maladaptive uh, remodeling to their pulmonary system. So it essentially ends up happening. These athletes' cardiac output is so high that their red blood cells move so fast through their pulmonary capillaries that they can't actually pick up oxygen. And these athletes just end up delivering deoxygenated blood to the periphery. Diffusion limitation, right? Yeah, diffusion yeah, limitation. Yeah, I think yeah. that like uh like a Amazon delivery truck like goes to the warehouse <laughs> and the people that are supposed to load up boxes are getting ready and the truck just doesn't stop moving. <laughs> They're like trying to throw boxes into the back of a moving truck. Yeah. And the truck leaves the factory and it's just half empty. 
It yeah. just doesn't have packages in it. And then it goes to people's houses to drop off nothing. That's essentially yeah. what's happening to these individuals. And that's probably the most common type of limitation that I see in the really top, top CrossFit Games athletes. Um, you look at some of their peripheral oxygen saturations and they're getting down to like 85% at maximal effort exercise. Sometimes you'll um, hear them talk about their fingers and toes going numb or you'll see their lips turn blue when they really push themselves. So that's kind of like the physiologic phenotype. But then I think what really differentiates people is their ability to regulate tension and handle training volume. Because like we said earlier, they all pretty much have the same VO2 maxes. Their engines are just as large, um, but their efficiencies are grossly different between people. And this could be um, like their uh, length tension relationships or just their ability to handle training volume. If you think of someone like Paula Radcliffe, where she's improving her economy really late into her running career, think of how many thousands of foot strikes she's getting in a given week and how many miles she's racking up over the years. You think of that total amount of work volume that it took to improve her economy and then take any single movement in CrossFit. The top games athletes haven't done even a fraction of that volume of squatting, handstand pushups, chest to bars. So part of the reason why they're all horribly inefficient at almost every single movement that they're doing is that they just haven't been able to do enough volume to develop efficiency. And I think this is partly why the best CrossFit Games athletes are just able to handle an insane amount of training volume. That's really the requirement to become efficient. So you have this like elite physiology, and then you layer on the ability to handle a ton of training. And that's what makes someone such a good CrossFit athlete. I honestly don't think Rich Froning or Matt Frazier's VO2 maxes or lactate thresholds or what have you are that much better than the athletes that are in 15th or 20th. I think it's just they could do more work before they get injured. Yeah, it's funny because <laughs> not to throw uh, Matt Frazier under the bus here, but you know, people think that it's his his training that won him the CrossFit games, right? He releases hard work, pays off kind of training. So, and people mm -hmm. are going to eat that up thinking that that's going to improve them. People kind of miss the point that Matt spent years at the Olympic training center doing mm -hmm. Olympic weightlifting. And a lot of people have never actually been in Olympic weightlifting gym for mm -hmm. cr even CrossFitters. Right. And they don't understand how many front squats, how many snatches, how many clean and jerks that these people have exposed themselves mm -hmm. to whether it's with a broomstick, a bar, mm -hmm. all those things combined, they've even taking one of those, I bet you Matt Frazier's probably done more snatches with a broomstick than most people have done snatches with weight on the bar in their life, mm -hmm. right? So I mean, people fail to recognize this very simple fact that he spent so much time mm -hmm. in this space. Yeah, just... and to speak of like the utility of work over time, we actually had a coach at Training Think Tank, I'm not gonna throw anyone under the bus here, He's probably the freakiest athlete I've ever seen. He wouldn't submit his scores for the open, but yeah. he would regularly be in the top five in the world on these events. Jesus. And he would beat Noah and Travis and all these people in the open workouts. Yeah. And I remember asking one year, I'm like, dude, why don't you submit your events? Like you would, you would easily go to the games because he would even do the regional workouts back at our gym at TTT. And he would put up scores that would smoke all of the athletes that were actually competing at regionals. Yeah. He's like, I have no volume tolerance. He's like, yeah, I could put up one amazing workout every week mm. in the open. But he's like, if I go to regionals, I can't do that much work. He had a lot of really gnarly um, injuries from like his prior sports career. Mm. 
So he had the physiology to put up these ridiculous scores, but his volume tolerance just wasn't up to par. So you would have games athletes who were clearly not as talented as him. They couldn't beat him one-on-one on a workout. But if you were to do five workouts in a day, they end up smoking him just because they could take the beating. And that's something that really stuck with me because I realized even looking at our own body of games athletes that we had regularly coming through the doors, there were a few guys there who putting them through testing, seeing them work out over one weekend, I'm like, man, they're clearly much better than these other games athletes who are consistently ranking the top 10. But these guys would get injured every other month, so they would never be able to put in a long enough training block to really reach their potential. Yeah, that's it. That's a huge thing that just I think people kind of throw out with the bathwater is is they completely misunderstand people's capacities to handle volume and load at certain competitions. Like for example, it was the same. Like you'd see people, whatever sport it is, whether Let's take climbing, for example, right? Someone that's a great onsider, but they can't red point, right? Because yeah. they, they don't have the endurance to sit there at the crag and rep, rep after rep after rep. They have a mm-hmm. couple of good goes in them at most. Um, or whether it's in, in fighting, I'd see this all the time, where guys were absolute world beaters in the first round. Half the second round, that starts to deteriorate. And then in the third round, if they're in the third round, they're done, right? Yeah. Um, and it just people fail to to realize the capacity that's needed to compete at the CrossFit Games. Yeah, a lot of people out there might smash some of these individuals and on, on one-offs, um, but realistically, big part of their um, you know characteristics that make them succeed is their ability to handle load over time. Yeah, and it's um, it, it's funny because when we we're talking about that too, I used to I train in Thailand for a bit. And, um, you know, these guys would come in half drunk and smoking cigarettes and they would gas us within, you know, two minutes of a round and they're mm. sitting back there. Absolutely. Chill as can be, you know, bringing their lunch pail to work kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And people don't realize like endurance. A lot of the times comes from, you know, yes, having the tissue qualities, but also like we were talking about earlier, these guys have spent decades doing the same thing over like Paula Radcliffe, like Matt Frazier doing the same thing over and over again. And this is what I used to see back in the day. Some of the best boxers in the world used to be chain smokers, yeah. right? Like Nicolino Loche, Argentinian boxer. Great. One of the best defensive boxers of all time used to chain smoke in between rounds and fights. Mm-hmm. And he had some of the best cardio you've ever seen, but it's because he was so efficient in his movements, spent so much time there. It's just, uh, yeah, it's it's a point that people, I think, miss. Yeah, and combat sports really exposed that. I used to wrestle for years, and my wrestling coach, who's like in his mid-40s, didn't really work out. And he would wrestle with us, all of us are young guys, and he would just kick our asses. And you'd think yeah. like, oh, my God, this guy's in insane shape. Yeah. But then we would go for a run with him and you're like, wait, he could barely run with us and keep up. You're like, what the hell's going on? You realize you're like, oh, when he's wrestling, he's literally not doing that much more work than I am walking right now. Because he's so efficient. He wrestled for 20 years. He was a multi-time national champion, was on the Olympic team. So you're like, wrestling is just walking in the park to him. It's so ingrained that he 
literally does not have to expend energy in those positions <laughs> yeah. but then you see them run and you're like oh okay so yeah. it's not their conditioning yeah, and you could yeah. apply the same thing to crossfit you're like again is anyone just taking a walk through the park when they're doing thrusters or wall balls or burpees no yeah. no one's done anywhere near enough volume to really get to that point yeah it's so true man it's funny because i i think anyone in combat sports has had that experience to some degree with a coach or like a washed up, you know, you know, athlete that comes back in the gym after like five years off and dust yeah. everyone. Um, yeah, that's just, it, it's funny because it brings back a lot of good memories. Um, let's move into, this is like really something I wanted to get into is development of an athlete. And we can talk about crossroaders. We can kind of swing this into anything, mm-hmm. but um I think like where I'd like to start with this is just because I think a lot of people miss don't even think about this really they don't think about the trajectories and and possibilities from the training inventions training interventions that they're applying you know directly to the athlete and I remember hearing it you know back in the day I said this with a podcast I think it was with Jim or I can't remember who it was exactly but I remember here, I think it was Verkashansky that was saying like, you know, if you apply plyometrics to an athlete too early, you're going to destroy them. You know, you're going to ruin their their full potential. And I was like, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. What do you mean? It's plyometrics. It's plyometrics. And then it really took the time to learn is because once you start a wheel rolling, you know, Mm -hmm. that wheel continues to roll for the most part, you know, that people keep implying that. And if you build certain qualities before other qualities, you are inherently in the long run going to degrade from that athlete so the way i like to think of it is if we start you know building up an athlete and we start applying load too early for example let's just take olympic lifting because this will work really well with olympic lifting imagine if someone walks into olympic lifting gym and they start applying you know 135 pounds to the bar to learn olympic lifting before they start with a broomstick yeah, yeah, they're going to be able to lift 135 pounds, and they're going to be able to snatch and clean to a certain degree, and they might even be competitive out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the long run, we know that that athlete is not going to be served well mm-hmm. by the addition of that weight in the beginning. And I think I see this all the time with athletes that get into CrossFit. It's fun. It's competitive. They just keep applying the load. They keep applying the stimulus and they never take a step back to actually build these qualities. Like the guys that Matt Frazier, the guys yeah. like Rich Roney that have already spent years building before they went into this conditioning and they mm-hmm. focus way too much on conditioning, which is something that is fairly easily grasped, right? We can, we can attain conditioning fairly easy. It's not easy to build an aerobic base. It's not easy to build a strength base. And when you apply that conditioning realm to it, now like tiger woods changing a swing you're gonna have to take two years off basically Mm -hmm. and hope that you can get something out of this you know application that you change your swing right so i i don't know if you have any thoughts on this or or um yeah i mean i I think this concept is far-reaching like anytime if you start someone on advanced protocols and you skip the fundamentals, you're just hurting their ability for long-term progress because at some point you're going to need to do more intensity, more load, more volume. So you could think of this in terms of the motor skills like you were uh, just explaining or even starting a beginner athlete with too much total work Mm -hmm. because at some point they're going to plateau 
and you're not going to be able to give them more volume or more intensity forever, where you might be able to start them on a very small amount of work and actually see good progress and hold them there as long as you can. And eventually they plateau and you up the load and you could do this over a multi-year trajectory. Imagine if they just start with a moderate training volume already. One, they don't need that to adapt, but now that's the minimum threshold for improvement once they plateau. Um, a while back, I was working with some professional bodybuilders doing consulting with them, and they said something that really struck me at this kind of odd at first, but it makes sense in light of this as well. So these were professional IFBB pro bodybuilders, humongous human beings using meaningful amounts of androgenic steroids. And one of the things that they were saying is they were talking about this younger bodybuilder who's up and coming, really large individual. And they're like, he started on gear too early. They're like, he's too big. I'm like, how are you talking? Like, isn't the entire purpose of your sport yeah, yeah. get big? And they're like, it is. But they're like, if you start on a high amount of gear, yeah, you're going to get big. But what happens when you plateau? They're like, yeah, the yeah. best professional drug using bodybuilders get as big as they possibly can without using a single drug, mm. max out that natural potential then use a very small amount of drugs, max out their potential and increase over time. And it's a kind of funny way of looking at it, but the same idea applies to training volume intensity or any variables. If you just start kind of like pushing the max, yeah. you're kind of screwed when you plateau. Yeah. Yeah, that it's that's that's probably the best analogy I've heard on that because you know, I've heard that in the bodybuilding space, you know, because you have these two camps of people just smash as much gear as you want. And then you hear these mm -hmm. other people talk about, you know, it's the minimum effective dose is going to get you where mm -hmm. you want to be. Yeah. Bodybuilding field has actually got people, obviously, you don't have to do drugs, folks, um, you know, PEDs to be to learn from bodybuilders. But if you go in and, and listen to some of the discussions that some of these guys are having, or some of the content that some of these guys put out, it's actually quite informative helps you, you know, pull a lot of these concepts together around training for anything and adaptation for anything, right? Because mm -hmm. they are really close to that, you know, adaptation response when it comes to hypertrophy and mm -hmm. all the things that go into that and the way that they think actually, um, you know, can stimulate some good thought. But yeah, because where I wanted to put it on that is, you know, there's only when we talk about, you know, we're talking about economy, because thinking about CrossFit and economy, it's such an important factor. Mm -hmm. And I think if you if you ruin those patterns in the beginning, if you if you, you for the sacrifice of some quick term results, you are going to limit yourself. We already talked about the energetics, but the coordination wise too, it's like to work yourself back from where you are to try and relearn again, it may never happen for you. You see this with runners that pick up these, you know, specific habits or sprinters for sure. Like you hear, I've heard Charlie Francis talk about this. People have these specific compens compensation patterns that they carry into their, their sprinting. And if you try and go and, and, and change that, cause that is their limiting factor. Like you think that is, maybe it's not, but you try and change that, you will completely ruin that athlete and they'll never come back from that. Yeah. Um, and I just think that it's, it's like any sport, they all kind of follow the same rules. You have to walk before you run and CrossFit just seems to, it, it, it's the, it, like, I, I love CrossFit because it's the most, you know, 
it's the it's kind of the greatest unsolvable question in, in exercise physiology right like how do you make a good crossfitter it's impossible yeah. you know what i mean it just depends on the year depend. but we we kind of like to think that there is these things that are over overlying principles that if you can you know apply the proper patterns in the beginning and then build from that and it's it's no different really than any athlete that's reached you know really high highs they've done it probably the proper way whether it's shooting pucks in the backyard before going out and playing you yeah. know 20 games a week they've got really good at the process of just shooting a puck and handling a puck in the backyard yeah. um and i just think crossfit kind of misses that point but um yeah so one thing i want to talk to you about because uh i don't really hear people in the exercise physiology space talk about climbing ever you know andre's done some research on it and i hope to talk to him in the future and talk a little bit about it but climbing is this kind of other field where you know I, i've been into climbing for a while i don't climb much anymore just don't have time mm -hmm. um but there is so much misconception surrounding climbing mm -hmm. and also like you know even some of the best stuff out there like some of the anderson brothers uh put out a book a training for climbing if people aren't are familiar with that um they're very very basic but i think there's there's a lot of misconceptions in climbing as well but maybe we can just talk about you and because i know you had some exposure to climbing and with the brain that you have i'd love to hear like you know what you learned from climbing what you did in climbing maybe just spend some time bouldering i don't know what it what to what capacity but did did you gain anything from from climbing at all did you did you look at the process of what it takes to be a good climber so ironically one of the things that really uh struck me with climbing it's really the opposite of crossfit in some ways so the crossfitters that want to get good at like thrusters they're always thinking get stronger um and that's going to make you better versus just layering on volume in climbing you almost see the opposite in some regards where athletes focus too much on volume and not not enough on strength but one of the things that really struck me with climbing is a lot of crossfit athletes struggle with grip endurance that's a well-known limitation in crossfit mm -hmm. but when crossfit athletes try and improve their grip endurance they go about it in a very backwards way they lack grip strength and they just try and do a ton of volume <laughs> in movements one with a neutral wrist position so they're almost always training with a neutral wrist doing farmers carries plate pinches all these different things and one of the things that i learned from climbing is that yeah you could do as much grip endurance work as you want but if your fingers hands and forearms are weak it doesn't really matter you could climb all the v0 and v1 bouldering routes that you want do 50 of them in a day and it's not going to make you a v10 climber because you're just yeah. too freaking weak and you never really see athletes outside of the climbing world training grip maximal endurance or uh, maximal strength. And I literally mean three second maximal effort bursts, mm. max effort hangs. These are things that when I brought them into the CrossFit world, athletes had struggled with grip limitations for years and are always doing grip work. The grip limitations disappear. So I've had a lot of CrossFit athletes start hangboarding up. Uh, usually not doing true absolute strength work because finger flexor tears are a real yeah. issue, particularly if your hands aren't conditioned for it. But doing basic hangboarding, even 20, 30 second hangs, you can build up load on that. It makes a really big uh, impact for crossfitters. Also, the 
variation of wrist positions in climbing that you see athletes training in mm. makes a huge difference for CrossFitters. Because like we said in CrossFit, people are always training a farmer carry, neutral wrist. Mm. They're doing plate pinches, neutral wrist. But what are the movements in CrossFit that athletes struggle with their grip? Chest-to-bar pull-ups, touch-and-go power snatches, things of that nature. Those movements don't occur with a nice, perfect neutral wrist. The next wrist is flexing and extending. And muscles are strongest in their mid-range, not in their shortened or lengthened range. So for CrossFit athletes, another big thing has been training their grip in those other wrist positions. So if they fully flex their wrist and they kind of have their arm like a Zotman curl position, try and do a farmer carry like that. <laughs> yeah. Even top CrossFit Games competitors are like, I can't hold a 10-pound dumbbell in that position. <laughs> Or try and extend the wrist and put their arm by their side and hold the weight there. And again, they're holding minuscule weights. Some of these guys, when they do farmer carries, they're using hundreds of pounds per hand. Then you flex their wrist and they're going down to 10, 15 pounds. (laughs) So there's so much easy progress to be made. So that was one of the big things with climbing for taking it back. I'm by no means like an elite level climber. So I'm trying to learn many other things if I stuck with it for a long enough time but those are the big ones things i've learned and brought back to crossfit yeah i think it's funny because i've i I was blessed with a good grip i think it was just because um you know i always had this connection between how hard i squeezed Mm -hmm. when i started i started training when i was young so i always had this connection that how how hard i squeeze correlated to the amount of strength uh, or the amount of force I could output, right? So on mm. a bench press, anything I ever did, I always squeezed as hard as I could. And with having a good grip, you start to notice the advantages that you have of a good grip, especially in combat sports, climb, mm. all these other things with with weight. Like, because I did CrossFit for a while too, and I remember on some of these, like whether it was pulling exercises, deadlifts, right? It felt like I literally had a hook on my hand. Like mm. grip was never a thought in my mind, like never once did I even come close to thinking that, oh, my grip is limiting me at Mm -hmm. all, whether it was on pull-ups or anything, like to not have to think about that adds such a huge factor to your game. Because realistically, we know that most people, when it comes to endurance exercise with weight in their hand, one of the biggest limiting factors is their grip. And not, Mm -hmm. not only that, the grip serves as this anchor point for neural drive into mm-hmm. other parts of the body. And that's what I, I, I think we understand that's the same thing with the feet. If you try and squat with lazy feet, or you try to mm-hmm. sprint with lazy feet, those feed forward mechanisms that work up the body, you're not gonna be prepared for the load that you're trying to undertake. Um, so I think people just think of grip training, well, like, oh, I don't really care about my endurance. But if you train your grip, I believe you will be able to output more pounds or more force and whatever you're doing it's the same thing with the feet if you train your feet that weak point connecting to the ground the ankle stiffness too right it's a it's a point that's a focal point for force strength endurance all these different things yeah and something that never really occurred to me before climbing so i've I've worked with combat sport athletes when you always hear oh this athlete has small hands they're not going to hit harder and crossfit athletes will say i have small small hands thin fingers i'm not going to have strong grip you don't realize the capacity that fingers and hands have for hypertrophy when you actually yeah. train them directly. It sounds uh, almost uh, silly that we wouldn't think of that, but it wasn't until really climbing and 
you're looking around at a lot of experienced climbers hands and you're like oh my god their fingers are like twice the size of my fingers <laughs> yeah. you're like either everyone here is acromegaly yeah or yeah. uh doing this training is uh doing something yeah no it, it is funny but i don't think people have ever probably experienced that but if you go online you could look up a picture of some famous climbers hands like whoever you want and you'll notice that it's absolutely insane like it looks like they have you know, it looks like someone that's suffering from obesity and they have these, yeah. you know, massive fingers. Um, but yeah, no, it, it is it is a good point. Uh, it, it clicks a lot of things in my head when you're talking about that. I, I didn't really think about that when carrying over was a grip. Because um, with climbing, I never really focused much on, well, I did do a lot of finger training and stuff like that, but it wasn't something that I thought about applying to other things. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so let's move into like some of the stuff that you're current currently interested in now like because i know i heard you on sean's podcast you were talking about nitric oxide and some of the stuff that you're which is really interesting stuff because it's a it's a link that i think you're gonna kind of crack the code on for a lot of people's understanding we're talking earlier too about you know vascular control and we're talking about vo2 max and that's such a huge factor like your body has capabilities i look at it this way a lot of training is is building the structures up so we can start to push these switches back in the cycle, right? We have these switches in our body, whether it's the Golgi tendon organs, whether it's the muscle spindles, whether it's, you know, the brain controlling vascular control, all these kind of the bare receptors, all these different things. Mm -hmm. We kind of have to break those switches, but to break those switches, you have to provide the structures underneath with the capability to be able to break those switches. Um, I don't know if that's something you want to talk about, but whatever it is that you're interested in, whether it's nitrous nitric oxide, whatever it's, uh, you know, kind of glossing over your. Yes. Yeah, so there are three things. One to, to give some context right now, I don't actually work with athletes one-on-one -on -one anymore. So yeah. it, it gives me some flexibility and freedom to kind of like dabble in these other areas. Cause I don't really have, the coaching client load um but they're very much things that i want to bring back to training with working through athletes and other capacities so my big three and they're all kind of connected in one way or another are cardiovascular control mechanisms like you had mentioned mm -hmm. essentially understanding blood flow regulation we don't think about blood flow that often but ultimately that's one of the biggest drivers of performance if you can't get oxygenated blood to a tissue there's not much you're going to do in the way of strength endurance etc. And nitric oxide is a really big part of that. It's a very often overlooked um, molecule where we're not taught about it in school. And it really is a tragedy. We're always taught about the respiratory system and this two gas respiratory cycle. You breathe oxygen in yeah. and you breathe carbon dioxide out. The reality is, is they missed the third gas. It's actually a three gas respiratory cycle in the human body. And nitric oxide is the third gas so when we're not thinking about that, it leads us to make some conclusions that are a little off base about how the pulmonary system functions, how oxygenated blood actually gets to the working muscle. The other big area of interest for me is um, exercise-induced changes in gene expression. Mm. So ultimately, all that we're trying to do with training, so we're trying to create a specific chemical change that leads to a change in transcription. Yeah. So the reason why uh, steroids work, if someone were to go down that route, is that they're working on these same signaling pathways as training would do. And it's turning switches on, turning other switches off. That's all exercise is doing. 
you lift a weight and you're providing a tension stimulus and that tension stimulus is going to turn on different signaling cascades that change gene transcription and turns on genes that are going to build muscle. So I'm really interested in understanding how a given training intervention impacts different people's gene expression. Hmm. You could actually study this. So I've been looking a lot at data sets where they'll take a blood sample from a bunch of different people at baseline and they'll do a DNA microarray and they'll get gene expression on a whole host of different genes. Hmm. One of the ones that I'm really interested in is called VEGFA hmm. and it codes for vascular endothelial growth factor. That's what grows your blood vessels and capillaries in the tissue. And this connects back to cardiovascular control. If you don't have capillaries and blood vessel growth, you're not going to be able to get as much blood. Hmm. One of the really neat things that you see with is VEGFA gene expression is you have 20 different athletes in one data set. I looked at it recently. It's all 20-year-old males, all relevant training backgrounds. And at baseline, you just see wildly different levels of gene expression. Then you have them all do the exact same training program for 10 weeks. We're talking like pretty significant training programs, not just some like half-assed stuff you see in exercise training studies, like hard resistance training, hard endurance training. Mm -hmm. And then you look at gene expression after the study and you see some athletes gene expression goes down for VEGF, other athletes go up, other athletes are exactly the same before and after the training intervention. And there's so many different reasons for this. One athlete that had the highest expression before and then one of the lowest after it's like, well, maybe what they were doing for training before this intervention was even more aggressive than what they did in that intervention. So you're actually decreasing the stimulus for blood vessel growth. Another athlete that starts low, maybe you're actually upping their volume and intensity, and that's why they're getting an increase in gene expression. So it's really interesting seeing how a bunch of different athletes could all do the exact same thing, and it's actually impacting their gene expression in completely different ways. And this isn't really practical right now. Like I wish I had right something. I'm like, this is how we use yeah. this information. Um, but this is something that like my dream is if in a few years you could get like a portable gene sequencer and everything's <laughs> so simple. Like we could have, uh, we could take a quick blood sample from you, have you do your training, take another blood sample four hours later and we could see how your gene expression changes. You could technically do that right now. It's just a buttload of work and that's very expensive. But as these things get cheaper, you could conceivably look at how a given training stimulus is impacting an athlete's gene expression over time. And instead of having this black box of we give people training and they either get fitter or they don't, we could actually see within that box and make it opaque and understand all of this molecular machinery. And just imagine what that's going to do for training. If you literally knew how everything impacted the athlete, you could cut out everything that's not getting the exact response you want, and you could put other things in. And maybe you could have CrossFit athletes with really good uh, economy and everything because you could just make the training so potent. So that's something that I'm really interested in. And then kind of the third a big area for me right now that connects to both of these is applying machine learning to um, training data sets for predicting injury and performance and things of that nature. So by virtue of working for a tech company now and actually working on some of these problems, that's kind of the three topics that I'm working with on a daily basis. Dude. Okay. So <laughs> that... Okay, let's let's get into this next one for a second because this is super interesting to me. 
Um, the nitrous nitric oxide is super interesting, but you, I'll, I'll let people listen to the podcast with Sean about that. Cause you did a great discussion with him kind of mm-hmm. understanding, uh, or helping people understand the misconceptions around nasal breathing, all the stuff that's out there, right? It just <laughs> rattles my brain sometimes, but, um, this DN, the, the understanding nuclear genome, understanding bacterial genome, understanding mitochondrial genome. I think this, like, like you said, I think this is going to be the future of athletic performance. Some of the stuff that I've, I've been really into lately is understanding the microbiota's connection to uh, physical uh, performance and understanding the differences between w- one interesting study um, basically I'll kind of overview it for people is they, they took groups of mice, they knocked out some genes and had, you know, wiped out basically the bacteria in certain mice. And they, they kept the bacteria, the bacterial, uh, genome, essentially the, the microbiota intact in the other mice and monitored the response and adaptations to hypertrophy, essentially. Um, and interestingly enough, it had a huge impact, mm-hmm. which started spurring things in my mind of, you know, some of these phenotypes we see responding to a certain stimulus, mm-hmm. how much of that is informed by, obviously we knew that we know the nuclear genome has a huge part of it, but also the bacterial genome inside the gut. Um, yeah. I, I think it's, that's a hugely missed uh, aspect. And even talking about, we you know, like caloric harvest, these things, mm-hmm. the bacteria you have in the gut is going to dictate how much calories you actually take into your body as to use a substrate mm-hmm. it's like yeah. the bacterial genome is is insane to me i have a colleague um a lot of the breakthrough discoveries related to nitric oxide are actually his work and in his really? lab they did something similar where they had mice that were essentially living in a uh perfectly hermetically sealed chamber where they stripped these mice of all of the gut bacteria and they weren't able to uh produce nitric oxide anymore it essentially knocked out their nitric oxide synthase so they couldn't vasodilate blood vessels they were prone to heart attacks and strokes and mouse dementia and all that they did was clean out their microbiome so you realize you're like how much of our ability to produce these different biomolecules is related to um our gut bacteria or the bacteria in our mouth, that's one of particularly particular concern for people is if you strip out the bacteria in your mouth, you're actually not going to get uh, nitrates from your food properly processed. This is why if you take beetroot shots and you um, use Listerine prior, you're not going to get the performance enhancing effect of beetroot because you've knocked out the nitric oxide synthesizing bacteria in your mouth. So there's all these things that are just starting to be explored. And I really think it is the complete tip of the iceberg because we know so little about the gut microbiome. We know so little about the human brain. Now that different um, uh, like machine learning platforms have been Mm. being applied to the human body, you're just seeing these insane breakthroughs come out every few months that are just like mind-boggling systems in the body work entirely different than anyone ever conceived yeah and these things are typically geared towards like neurodegenerative disease or cardiovascular disease just because it's so expensive to run these projects and do these experiments but as technology gets cheaper you're going to see these starting to get turned towards 
exercise physiology and i think there's gonna be some craziness that comes out of that yeah because to me like people think like i hear this all the time i'm like there's no there's like there's no big secrets left in exercise physiology like everyone knows how to it's like yes to a degree i understand what you're saying you know the athlete has to be dedicated to the sport put in the work and over time they will get there but these these fundamental things that we inherently just don't understand, I think will make a dramatic shift in exercise physiology. Yeah. I think like when you're, you're talking, we we're just talking the bacterial, the mitochondrial genome. And if anyone um, listening here hasn't checked out Evan's Substack, go on there. He has an article um, where we we're talking earlier about Arthur Svensson and it mix in, mixes in some of Doug Wallace's work which he's, uh, you know, kind of uncovered the mitochondrial genome is inherited from your mother, essentially. Um, he, he, that guy will win a Nobel Prize someday, for sure. This is some of the work he's doing, I think. But um, essentially, he, Evan gets into the uncoupling or the coupling efficiency of the mitochondria, essentially. So we have these things called uncoupling proteins, which essentially create gaps in the mitochondrial membrane, which leak uh, you know, so-called energy, right? Leak protons through, which provide the energy for ATPase, which, you know, is a nanomotor that spins around like, I don't know, 2000 times per second or something like that. Anyways. So for you to create energy, you need these tight gaps in the mitochondrial membrane. And depending on your genetics, the efficiency of that membrane is going to really dictate how well you can perform work or how well you can essentially heat your body so people mm-hmm. living that's why you see when you see black people uh, come visit canada for the first time they're like brother i, I just i don't like, i don't understand i don't understand like they're just so inherently they, their body is not designed to handle this type of climate and what their body is really good at doing is producing work a lot of these people that's why you see people from kenya it's not like by chance Yes, we understand that gen- the nuclear genome has a big part to play in that too. Um, and also yeah. like their lung development, but the mitochondrial genome is such, and I remember commenting and I'm like, I'm, I'm happy that someone's talking about this because people completely miss this altogether, mm-hmm. um, this factor. And, and I think a lot of the stuff that I've been experimenting with in terms of supplementation is really centered around the mitochondria because... Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't talk about this with much people. It's like, oh, the only thing that works is beetroot juice and uh, creatine and caffeine. And I'm like, well, we spend pretty much 90% of our time trying to gain adaptations from the mitochondrial. Mm-hmm. Why don't we spend time thinking about how can we enhance that, right? Yeah. How can we enhance that? Um, also, right, like we're vascular response. All these other things are a big part of play. But realistically, when a, a cyclist goes out there and trains for 35 hours a week, Mm-hmm. A lot of that has to do with the mitochondria. A lot of that has yeah. to do with the VEGF, right? Shear stress on the, on, mm-hmm. on the vessel. Um, but yeah, dude, like I, I love hearing people's take on this. Like, cause I go through some of these papers and uh, nuclear genome research right now for sports performance is starting to get there. I have seen some papers recently talking about response yeah. to exercise and it's just, I think it's on this edge right now where we're, we're seeing yeah. stuff. There's something I've wanted to get this data for the longest time. It's one of those projects I've just haven't gotten around to doing this in the past two years. But talking about the leakiness of mitochondria and how much heat generation there is per unit of work, 
like you said, very northern latitude populations, mm-hmm. they they have very inefficient energy turnover. They produce a lot of heat. And if you think about that from a survival standpoint, well, if you're all the way up in uh, the Arctic Circle, do you want very tightly coupled mitochondria that <laughs> don't produce a lot of heat? No, you're going to freeze to death. Yeah. So you have very leaky mitochondria. There's a lot of heat production per unit of work. And interestingly, if you look at the populations with the highest view to max values and lowest rates of metabolic disease, all northern latitude, if you look at equatorial populations, on average, native equatorial populations have the lowest VO2 max values and the highest risk of metabolic diseases when they adopt Western diets. Very tightly coupled mitochondria, not a lot of heat production or metabolic heat production. And you look at the best endurance athletes, Rift Valley, it's not equatorial, it's not very high, it's kind of a moderate latitude where you're having slightly leaky mitochondria, so you could have these very high VO2 max values, but they're also relatively tightly coupled, so they're efficient. This actually goes back to like the 1980s. Michael Joyner was predicting who would run the sub two-hour marathon. And he even said, he's like, the person who runs the sub two-hour marathon will not have the highest VO2 max. He's like, they'll have a moderately high VO2 max that is totally reasonable, but they'll also have very good efficiency. And if you predict where that would fall on like a latitude line, you're like, yeah, it's roughly the Rift Valley. (laughs) And yeah, what do you know? All the best distance runners are from there. They're in Ethiopia. Yeah. So it, it is crazy to think about. I, I've wanted someone to collect a ton of population VO2 max data and also get the uh, mitochondrial genome data and just map that out and see how that correlates. Yeah. If someone has that, like, please <laughs> publish it. Yeah, that that would be absolutely amazing. Like, that that's where the data science gets into. It's like, I, I, yeah, the funny thing is because I, I hear this thing because <clears throat> I'm deep in the rabbit hole in physiotherapy too. And, um, the, the shape of the thorax, this is something that I've been uh, brought to my attention. I haven't found the research that dictates this yet, but I've, I've heard several people speak on this before. Obviously, I'm sure you're f- familiar with Bill Hartman, but um, I don't know if it was, yeah, I think it was Zach Couples was talking about it, but the shape of the thorax changes throughout, you know, latitudes. So essentially, the more nor- northern that you are, um, you know, the thorax is going to be more flattened essentially looking like a, 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 a if you squish out all the toothpaste in a toothpaste tube it's going to be very wide and flat whereas mm-hmm. if you were to fill that toothpaste tube up with toothpaste it's going to be quite round mm-hmm. and the reason why they believe this is is because obviously it holds heat better when you have this flatter tube right yep. compared to doing work right which is you know running locomotion mm-hmm a very cylindrical thorax is going to aid in the ability, ability to rotate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just like the anthropometric side of things, I would love, because if you look anthropometrically at individuals, obviously a lot of this has to do with, yeah, these people are just walking more. These people are just, um, you know, spending more time doing physical activity. But if you look at the development of, let's just say the calf musculature, like the gastrocnemius, yep. those end up quite high in some of these you know, equatorial mid latitude ranges, right? Like if you're looking at Nigerians, um, you know, more so West Africans, right? Like they have specific 
uh, anthropometrics and musculature that aid in the ability to, you know, do work quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And then moving on to the other side of that is um, actually, yeah, where was I going with that? Anyways, I don't know where I was going with that, but um, yeah, I just, yeah, I just uh, think it's amazing. It's, it's amazing. There's so many things. Yeah, I think you're basically going like based on latitude. I mean, it's it's not just mitochondrial genomes. There's different anthropometric adaptations as well. And I mean, yeah. it makes sense if you think about like most uh, most things in biology come from natural selection. Yeah. So different demographics, uh, different latitudes, different flora, fauna, they're going to select for different adaptations in humans as well. Mm-hmm. So that accounts for a lot of this variability. It's not that everyone that migrated to Northern Europe or the Arctic Circle happened to have uncoupled mitochondria. No, yeah. everyone that went there and didn't probably froze to death. <laughs> yeah, People that are very uh, uncoupled yeah. at the equator, they probably had heat stroke. So the yeah. only left are the ones that have the uh, genotypes and phenotypes that are well-suited to that environment. And you extrapolate that over millions of years. And then you have this genetic variability in the human population because we're one of few animal species that are pretty much everywhere. Yeah. So it, it is pretty crazy to think about it from that perspective. Yeah. So let's let's move into final questions before we go deep down the rabbit hole. Data science and keep mm-hmm. pushing on this. Um, this has been, this has been amazing so far. Um, so the first question, I think you kind of alluded to it maybe earlier in the conversation, is if you had unlimited resources while staying within the realm of you know technology that is currently available or somewhat developed to us right now mm-hmm. um if you could commercialize it and compact it uh to use with athletes for for diagnostics mm-hmm. what what would that be and, and why yeah so i'll give a caveat that this is basically what i do for work at this point we build <laughs> different technologies and compact them and scale them i can't get into specifics of what I do. Maybe that's something for future conversation. So barring anything that I actually do work on, um, I would do the compactable DNA and RNA sequencer. That's not something that I work on right now. So I could talk about that. I mean, I just think the applications for that are limitless for performance, medical applications, you name it. And if you gave me these unlimited resources and I could do that, I'd probably make a buttload of money as well. And <laughs> that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that is, is actually good. It's some of these things I'm, I'm some of the answers on that question are, are actually much different than I expect people to answer on, which, which is nice. So we'll kind of move around here in this question bank, but can you give me a, a time where you've had a hypothesis or had a perception on how certain things work, whether it's an exercise physiology, maybe it's something completely unrelated to exercise physiology and anything where you were sure that this was how it worked. This was how everything wrapped around the concept and you were completely off course and, and learned something actually quite useful from that. Yeah. I mean, I could literally think of hundreds of times that I've been wrong about things. When I first started getting into exercise physiology, I was very sure that I knew how things worked. I'd read a few textbooks and I I knew that lactic acid was the source of fatigue. 
I knew that you drain the phosphocreatine pool before you start tapping into the glycolytic system and then the oxidative system. I knew these things as facts. And over time, you realize that you're actually wrong about most of those things. I was absolutely wrong about all of those things I just mentioned. Um, in recent years, though, it's less of these like huge revelations where you're just completely off base on something. And it's more nuanced changes over time or uh, better appreciations of how things work. So a lot of times, um, particularly because I, I spend a lot of time reading out about blood flow regulation, mm. I'll, I'll know how a gross process works at a macro scale. And I'll understand the different mechanics of the components involved. But then I'll realize that the reason that one of those micro processes happens the way it does was wrong. So you're like, oh, shit, that little cog in the wheel is different than I thought it was. It doesn't change your overall interpretation. It might not even change what you do in practice, but it's a better understanding of this small mechanism. And I think that's a lot of the recent years. It's these really small evolutions that none of them are really that significant. But if you kind of stack these up over enough time, you're like, okay, I have a, I have a pretty different working understanding of how this process and the body functions. That that is that is true. It's just I guess that's a good sign of of maturity. It's where your 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 conceptions around things are much more conservative, right? You don't make these huge dramatic leaps and take these huge dramatic jumps to to trying to understand things. You kind of build it a little bit by bit, and you break a little bit rather than fracturing half the thing and trying to like find yourself again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's also the realization that, I mean, when I was younger, I thought science is what we use to discern the truth. And what I've really learned over time is that that's yeah. not really the purpose of science. It's actually just to make ourselves less wrong. Yeah, yeah. So we're probably wrong about a lot of things right now. And we could just be less wrong in six months or less wrong in 10 years. But we're probably never going to know like the truth with the capital T. So it's also just not holding on to anything too strongly because I meet experts in all different fields on a week to week basis. And a lot of times I'll be talking to them and you might say something and they're like, by the way, that's completely wrong. And here's why. And you're like, Oh my God, like even that is wrong. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I think like if, if you look at some of these fields for people to try and kind of give themselves a little bit of reference go read a little bit on biophysics or like quantum biology and these things and it's like mm -hmm. the amount of information that we actually understand about how these things functionally work at a little level or like i see this all the time where people just have this blind faith in the system like oh this thing's available uh, it must be good because the government says it. it's like if people actually understood how little these these organizations and institutions knew about what's out there like whether that's pesticides or thing, it could be anything i don't care what it yeah. is right i'm not like you know gung-ho on any one thing but it's just like people think that the government just has this all-knowing best interest and all understanding uh you know capacity around all these little intricate things about biology to keep us safe and it's like if you actually read the research that's out there and understand how much we don't know. That's what yeah. always scares me when I read research. And I hear statements about, you know, actually, we don't understand the complete mechanism. I'm like, we don't understand this. Yeah, like, that's what freaks me out. It's not the fact that, oh, we figured out and even when we figure out these pathways, 
you know, 15 years down the road, we, we understand because the spin on the electron is the opposite direction. It's completely invalid, right? So it's yeah. like, no, yeah. totally. It is shocking how little we know. Like years and years back, I worked in a lab and we studied tuberculosis. Nice. And we spent like, I was only in there for like six months. That was not the thing for me. But basically, at the end of all this, they figured out, like, okay, tuberculosis is so deadly because these two enzymes, it's like awesome. We figured it out. And then I'm talking to the professor and I'm like, so what do these do? And they're like, oh, we have absolutely no idea. They're like, we've been took us the past 15 years to figure out that these two enzymes are make it so deadly but we have zero clue what they do we have no hunches and you're like oh my god like this is freaking tuberculosis man it's been killing people for yeah. hundreds of years and you're telling me that you have no idea what these enzymes do yeah. and it's like that's something that's so well studied i mean you think of anything in exercise science our field is only 100 years old like yeah. what could you really learn in a hundred years? It's a lot, but it's yeah. definitely not everything. Yeah, it's so true. It's so funny. It's like it's a little bit what's going on now. You see that? Yeah, it just makes me laugh. So, um, I know I know you're not training athletes uh, right now with with the current with the current uh, job you have, but let's say you had an athlete in front of you, let's just say they're, you know, fairly talented individual, they're looking to, you know, whether it's a CrossFit or, or whatever type of sport, they're looking to, you know, make it to, you know, the elite level, essentially push over that, that barrier to get them in to professional work in, in that industry. What, what do you do with that athlete to shrink the black box to, you know, we already talked a bit, a little bit about it, you know, how you structure their training, but you know, maybe some of the testing that you throw out, one of the things that you want to understand about what about the athlete. Yeah, totally. So anytime I've started working with a new athlete, they're never a blank slate. They're coming from another program or another coach. So the first thing that I do is I try and identify where are the big gaps in their training right now. So what are things that I know they're doing that just don't really make sense? Or what are things I think they really should be doing? And I make the minimum number of changes to their program as possible. So I'll literally take the program that another coach wrote for them and put them on, and I'll just start modifying that over time. Because for example, if this athlete's telling me I really need to get stronger and we identify, hey, that is the case, you need to get stronger. Well, let's look at the strength protocols they're doing. Instead of me starting from scratch, how do we modify what they're doing to see if we could start spurring some progress? And I'll start building on what they're doing. My idea is we should always be making the minimum number of changes at once. If I take this new athlete and I just start them with a bespoke program from scratch and they start doing phenomenal when they were plateaued for the past six months, I have no idea why they're getting better now. And now I've got a runaway train where I'm like, man, this athlete's doing great. I don't know why they're doing great. And inevitably they're going to plateau. And I have no idea what I'm going to change because I don't know what made them better. So a lot of it is that it's just making very small changes and really trying to isolate what is working, why it's working, what isn't working. And then you could get nuanced with that over time. The other thing is just layering on very simple data analysis. I'm not talking about applying machine learning with athletes or doing anything crazy. Even just understanding how to calculate a correlation between different measurements could be really useful for an athlete. So to give a really easy case, using um, 
using NEARS, you could look at rates of oxygen utilization. Mm -hmm. Well, what does that really do for performance? Well, maybe I want to improve an athlete's maximum speed and power. And over 20 weeks, I record their max power output and I record their maximum rate of oxygen utilization. And I might see that those things are perfectly linearly correlated to each other. Now I know something really important about that athlete. If I ever need to get them more powerful over time, I know improving their maximal rate of oxygen utilization is more than likely going to have that effect. That's just one example, but you could see how that could work in other instances. You could also look at uh, rolling averages of certain important key performance indicators and see how those are trending over time. Mm -hmm. So earlier we talked about misapplications of capturing training data. One of the big ones is people don't understand regression towards the mean. The time when you are most likely to regress is after having your biggest breakthrough. People don't think about it that way. But if you hit a five kilogram snatch PR, well, the next time you test a one rep max snatch is when you are most likely to not improve. <laughs> and a lot of times athletes will test again and they might go down two and a half kilos and they're like, my training's not doing anything. It's like, no, no, no. Let's, let's think about this. You had a five kilogram PR and now you test it again two weeks later and you're down two and a half kilograms. You're still two and a half kilos up from the beginning of the cycle. That's an yeah. improvement. So if you could look at rolling averages of measurements over time, that wipes out the impact of any given outlier, whether it's a really bad day or a really good day. And then you're not making decisions based off of outlier data points. So these are really easy things that coaches can do that don't really take a lot of time. And it could essentially make sure that you're not making decisions based off of emotions, making decisions off of bad data, or just changing too many things at once where you don't really know it's working. And then you could take some nice, easy notes over time. When an athlete does plateau, you could look back through your notes and have a pretty good idea of what you end up changing. And I think that's probably the biggest thing. When I learned that I didn't need to reinvent the wheel and always give athletes something novel, it made my programs work better. And it was way less stressful for me because I didn't feel like I always had to invent something and just use creativity to come up with a new training protocol. When I could just give someone the same thing they were doing last week and I could say, this isn't me being lazy. This is genuinely what's going to be effective. Yeah. That's that's actually really good. And I don't think people realize that much is <clears throat> anytime you see dramatic shifts in training, that's a very opportune time for injury or sickness to interject. Like when you see these dramatic shifts and whether it's load, whether it's, you know, variations of stimulus, different positions, you're you're generally going to overload the athlete because the stimulus has changed so much. Their body now has to kind of recalculate, okay, these are the demands for me to survive, right? Um, mm -hmm. Completely different than the other week. So that adds a lot of stress. And that that gradual shift is something that uh, I just don't think, you know, a lot of people think about, especially when taking on a new athlete, right? It's uh, super important. So um, this is one question that I, I don't really like it a lot, but it actually, I just like to hear the thought process around it. Like, I don't really care about the, I like to hear the thought process around it because it kind of gives me more information. So there's no one best test out there. There's no one best physiological test, performance test. Um, but 
let's just stick to physiology because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm interested in some of the markers and how you use them. But we know that if we get more tests, it gives us more data. But if you can only choose one test, whether it's, you know, let's say you're limited by money and you just wanted to use one test and become the master at it and publish, you know, the next 20 years of research on breakthrough of this test and mm -hmm. find all these underlying factors. Um, what would that test be? Let's just say you're using it for three to five years. Um, let's just say with a CrossFitter, what mm -hmm. would that, uh, you know, physiological test be and, and why? Oh God. Um, man, it's a hard one. Cause I'm like something like VO2 max. It's so simple and it is such yeah. a useful test, but it's only yeah. useful in a limited number of circumstances where I'm like, well, critical power could be used for pacing. It could be used to prescribe training. And mm -hmm. then I think about critical metabolic rate, which we had gone back and forth on via email. And I'm like, well, that's mm -hmm. not modality specific. Yeah. Oh, I had to pick one. I think I would pick some, I'm going to say critical power, but I'm going to yeah. flex the definition of that okay. and say okay. not modality specific. Okay. So if I could have critical power on the varying modalities and maybe yeah. I'm going to cheat and say that includes like critical power on a lift as well. Yeah. I think that would just give you so much precision with training and it gives you the ability to predict performance in a way that something like VO2 max can't. And this is assuming I'm not the one that needs to actually capture all of that data because <laughs> that's a pain. If it's yeah. just provided to me on a week-to-week -week basis, I have nice dashboards giving me critical power. That's definitely the one I would pick if it could only be one. Nice. Yeah, I like your thinking on that because it does give a really good profile. I mean, I mean, VO2 max, right? For people that don't know, people think VO2 max is just this number that's spit out to them. And that's what mm -hmm. the VO2... The real the real uh beauty in the vo2 max is it for a simple test you capture a lot of information right you capture transition points uh you you capture these you, how people's physiology is trending in certain portions of the test it does give you the vo max it, it does give you these capacities as well but it's realistically just giving you a profile it's a profile in the physiological physiological realm where you know you're getting these hard data and, and this is where i'm really interested i got a podcast coming up with a guy we're going to discuss this quite in depth I, I believe is you know some of these hard metrics like power um are starting to to kind of take the place of some of these physiological metrics and i obviously know that's a, a, a huge oversimplification but some of these um softwares that are coming out like inside i don't know if you've heard of them yep. or um there's some other guys that have kind of offshooted you know softwares of that they're really starting to wko5 they're really starting to grasp the connections between the physiology in the lab and mm -hmm. what those profiles look in these hard metrics like power yeah. because if you're going to see power profiles from whatever test and match them to use data science to match these and find the underlying factors underlying connections you're going to find something there and when these guys have uh you know come out with this stuff it's not just on a whim they're coming out with it after a long time of spending time comparing data and understanding yeah. the relationships between them so obviously we know that it doesn't take the place of a vo2 max test but i think that's cool that you said that because you know 
I think Phil Skiba would be proud of you because I think like he's such a, you know, he's such a big proponent of how useful this critical power is because it's giving you a really good, you know, hard metric, but also that applies really, really well to this physiological realm as well and understanding the profile. But um, yeah, well, anything I could do to make Phil Skiba proud of me, <laughs> I know I'm on the right direction. Yeah. So, um, one of the uh, the other things I want to touch on here is central or peripheral. So, like, mm -hmm. I, whether it's listening to you know webinars of different people, or conferences, or research, a lot of the times I hear researchers or scientists come out and say, "Like, it's central." Uh, people that mm -hmm. think it's peripheral are crazy. Or people that think it's central or have lost their mind. And you kind of already spoke to this before, um, so I think I know where the answer is going to go. But just maybe to elaborate a little bit, um, you know. Why do you think this question is is kind of lost some nuance to it? Yeah, so one, I'm going to start by saying uh, both for some people, central for other people, and then peripheral for a third group. I think it could be any of the above. Mm -hmm. I think the reason why this is so contentious, about two years ago, I published a paper. Um, I don't even remember a journal it was in, but the paper is titled Weak Belief Strongly Held Challenging Conventional Paradigms mm. of Maximal Exercise Performance. And I basically went through the history of VO2 max research yeah. and argued the point that VO2 max is not principally determined by stroke volume, which is the current belief in physiology. And I traced back the roots of where that belief came from. When Archibald Hill first came up with this VO2 max concept, he made some back of the napkin calculations. He said, at the end of maximal effort exercise, venous oxygen levels will be between 10 and 30% saturated. Arterial oxygen levels will be about 95 to 99% saturated. And then with his calculations, and he said, thus basically VO2 max has to be limited by the central systems because the arterial venous oxygen concentration difference, the difference between oxygen sat in your arterial venous blood is already about as wide as it could get. And VO2 max is determined by cardiac output multiplied by that difference. Therefore, cardiac output has to be the thing that creates the inter-individual differences. Everyone took that at face value for about 70 years after that, everyone was just trying to prove that true which isn't good science. They would say, oh, hemoglobin mass and concentration explains inter-individual differences between people's VO2 max, which is true. Males have uh, greater blood volume and hemoglobin mass and concentration than females. That accounts for differences in VO2 max. Adults are greater than children. That also accounts for these differences. Uh, inter-individual differences in stroke volume matter as well. For what people neglected, is that Archibald Hill came up with those figures of venous and arterial oxygen saturation at the end of exercise. A dude couldn't measure either of those things because <laughs> the technology didn't exist for 50 years later. So everyone just took it at face value that those were actual values and you see them cited in literature over and over. I tracked down over hundred papers that cited Archibald Hill and use that to justify VO2 max being principally limited by stroke volume and cardiac output. Well, it turns out that Archibald Hill got the math wrong and also <laughs> that he was just wrong in those measurements. Arterial oxygen saturation differs drastically at the end of exercise, as does Venus. And this is where it opens up the door for there being other limitations. 
some people can't utilize oxygen effectively in the periphery. So if they improve oxygen extraction in the tissue, they widen the arteriovenous gap and their VO2 max goes up. That's in support of an oxygen utilization limitation. There's other individuals like Peter Snell, former world record mile holder, where he had such great uh, arterial oxygen desaturation from a pulmonary diffusion limitation like we talked about earlier, that he was limited by pulmonary system function. That's another limitation for VO2 max. So the more you look into the literature and if you basically ignore Archibald Hill's back of the napkin calculations, you realize there's actually a lot of different limitations for VO2 max. Mm -hmm. And it's really not hard to spot these either. When you just test a dozen different athletes, you'll very clearly see that they have different limitations. Oh, 100%. Like, I just think about how many athletes that compete on a high level that have asthma. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like over the years, how many I've seen? And it's like... Yeah, getting your VO2 max higher is, you know, what we want, but probably one of the better ways to try and set that ground to do that is fixing your respiratory capacity and capabilities, yeah. right? And it's like, people just focus on these very niche things, but kind of think, take all things into account. That's, that's another thing too. Like, you were probably one of the first person. Yeah, I think you were the, you were the first. Yeah, I think it was. I had learned about breathing a long time ago from some of these Russian things that I was into uh, in combat sports um, mm -hmm. and understanding just the, essentially the cadence of breath, understanding, manipulating your breath for your psychology, mm -hmm. not just, you know, biochemically, but biochemically will manipulate your psychology as well. Mm -hmm. Right. We, we obviously yeah. understand that, but they were big on manipulating the cadence and little tiny breath holds while doing the anyways they're they're way further ahead than a lot of people and stuff when it comes to psychology and um but um yeah anyway so i was getting to was you spent a lot of time when you're discussing obviously the education around nears is explaining to people why the respiratory system has such an integrative you know reach when it comes to an athlete whether it's on your vo2 max whether it's on your you know um, anyways, so just that one little aspect that people never even take into consideration, they think, you know, respiratory training is some book you read about how not to overbreathe or whatever it is they, they come to in the most, you know, new pop side book, but they really miss the basic anatomy and physiology of what is required to have a high VO2 max or what is required to have performance while you need a properly functioning pulmonary system. And mm -hmm. the cardiac system connects to that. So maybe, you know, all these things that we see with, you know, cardiac adaptations are a proxy of that too, right? What's going on in the lungs. Mm -hmm. Anyways, getting way down in these weird rabbit holes and I don't have uh, too much time left here. So let's, let's, um, yeah. So I just wanted to give you a shout out there is because I think many people miss that basic, uh, you know, aspect when talking about central and peripheral they they don't understand that everyone's coming to it from a different place like there's so much to to dig out so last last question is um i'd like to understand like some of the interests you have outside of sports performance you know some of the stuff that you might read outside of sports performance or some of the stuff that you you like to do outside of you know all this stuff and i know that you're not super focused on it now with your new job but um, maybe stuff outside of the physiology realm. Yes. Yeah, so um, 
I mean, like academic fields, I'm really interested in computational biology, which is essentially just applying modern data science techniques to biology. So it's related to sports performance in a sense. Um, I think as different wearable technologies get better, it will be even more so. Uh, that's definitely a big interest of mine. And outside of that, I'm just dabbling in a lot of different areas. I don't have any uh, particular topics that um overly obsessed with but i yeah. really like getting exposed to different ideas from different disciplines and i've just found that a lot of the uh creativity that i've been able to have in sports performance and ideas i've come up with are usually uh completely unrelated to sports performance at their origin it might be uh, mm. uh environmental biology book that i read or uh, economics mm. book i read and you find that people that are innovative in any given field, a lot of the things that they come up with, you could probably bring it back to what you're most interested in. Yeah. So I just try to spend a lot of time reading as many different disciplines as I can. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a loss today. It's like over-specialization, whether that's in sport, whether that's in careers where people just, you know, hone in on this one thing, like the, the, the old Renaissance man is kind of lost where, you know, <laughs> yeah. like I hear some of these guys like, he was a cardiologist. He spoke five languages. He mm. was, you know, built several houses around, you know what I mean? It's like yeah. these people used to do everything. Like you never, you, it's so rare to hear people that branch out into different spaces. Um, people get really hyper-focused and um, it's easy to do that with the access to information that we have now, right? Like you can really hone in on just one thing and drill down. Yeah. But yeah, it's funny because you, you actually, you turned me on to, to one guy that super, super Rob Dunn. I heard you in a podcast a, a while ago. I think it was like, you know, maybe a year ago. <clears throat> and uh, you spoke on, on this, uh, he's a microbiologist, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And his, some of his work, I read two of his books now. So interesting because within those books, he pulls every, you know, so many different uh, fields of study into this, yeah. you know, this one concept of how this certain thing is so applicable to our lives, whether it's the, you know, dirt that we have in our house and maybe you shouldn't sweep your floor or whatever it is, yeah. or, you know, the, ant uh, the uh, pronghorns and, and, you know what I mean? Anyway, yeah. it's just great. Great. is so interesting. The books really um, take yourself out of this hyper specialization, you know, process of, Oh, the best way to learn about something is just to spend 40 hours a week reading that thing. Yeah, and even just, I mean, Rob Dunn's books are phenomenal for anyone who hasn't read them. Like, even just some of the ideas in there, things that you're positive, you know to be true. You're like, oh, parasites are terrible. And you yeah. read his books, and you're like, yeah. man, parasites being entirely missing from the human body might not be the best thing. Yeah. And it just raises all sorts of interesting things. And you could go down that rabbit hole and read about it for weeks and come out oh, in some yeah. weird ways that you didn't expect. Yeah, that, that that did actually, because I went down the Helmeth and all this other stuff. I yeah. went down the research that uh, it's uh, yeah, that stuff is it's so interesting. So yeah, I mean, this has been a this has been a great conversation. Like really, we touched on a lot of different things. Love to have a love to have you on again at some point because um, you know, I really like to dig into some of this stuff, especially around genetics too. Like we didn't have a ton of time to to really dig into some of these things, but um, so where where can where can people find you at? Yeah, so uh, best place to find me, 
post most of my content on Instagram. It's just my name with an underscore. So Evan underscore PyCon. In in the next few weeks, uh, you'll probably see more information coming out on my company's platform as well, which is uh, N-N-O-X-X underscore Inc. I-N-C. Um, we're finally going to start uh, putting out information on some of the things that we've been developing for the past year. Right now, there's no nice. information available on that. So I'm pretty excited for that. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. And if you still have that sub, you still have that sub stack up, right? Like if people, yeah, the, the sub stack is still live, all the articles yeah. in there. I just don't post anything new on that anymore. And that's the emerging performance lab sub stack. Yeah. Yeah. Check that out guys. Cause um, if, especially for CrossFitters too, right. There's a lot of gold in there. Yeah. Any athlete in general, really um, really good stuff. So yeah, man, thank, thanks a lot for coming on today and uh, we'll catch you later folks.